All right, let's begin with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are so happy to find ourselves uh, awake and alive for another Lord's Day. Uh, Day of all the week the best. Emblem of eternal rest. We pray this day that by your grace we would rest from our sins, rest in Christ. And uh, we thank you for Sunday school. We thank you for your word. We want to understand it. We want to live it out in our lives. And uh, to that end, we need your Holy Spirit, for your thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are your ways our ways. So, Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we once and for all would understand what this what you are saying to us from these pages, and uh, that we might live it out with integrity. And we pray this for our children as well, as they study uh, the, the, the delights of living a life of prayer over in the fellowship hall. We pray that you would bless their time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's review our history facts. So what was the name of the boy king, who, uh, king of Judah, who led a reformation and oversaw revival in the southern kingdom? The fifth from the last king of Judah. What's his name? Josiah. He reigned for 31 years. Which of his sons reigned in his place. When he died, he died. Josiah died at the Battle of Megiddo. Chris mentioned that last week. That's where the book of Revelation gets its name, the Battle of Armageddon, right? From the Battle of Megiddo, the the Valley of Megiddo. Um, Good King Josiah dies in battle, and which of his sons follows him? Just... Not yet, who comes first of, of the Jez? Jehoahaz. 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 Jehoahaz was the son of Josiah that the, that the people wanted to be their king. And how long did he reign? Three months. Three months, only three months. Because Pharaoh... Uh, having defeated the southern kingdom, uh, decided to put his man on the throne, Jehoahaz's brother. And who was he? Who comes after Jehoahaz? Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. And how long did Jehoiakim reign? Eleven years. Was he a good king? No, he's a bad king. Tyrant. Despot. And uh, you read uh, a fascinating story about him two weeks ago with, with Aaron Haskell. And uh, did I ask how long he reigned? How long did Jehoiakim reign? Eleven years. And then... Um, Nebuchadnezzar comes and defeats Jehoiakim and puts his 
his, uh, his son, well, his son comes to, to reign, right? And his name is Jehoiachin, and he reigns for three months um, before Nebuchadnezzar decides to displace Jehoiachin with the last king of Judah, whose name starts with Z. Zedekiah, who reigned for 11 years. Right? So Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah. Three months, 11 years, three months, 11 years. And what is the year BC that Jerusalem falls definitively and the temple's destroyed? 587 BC. So learning those history facts, I've argued, or I've encouraged you, will help you to make sense of this book that contains a lot of history and a lot of autobiography, but not in chronological order. All those events are dated by kings' reigns. So knowing the last five kings of Judah, who they were, and their order will help you to, to track. All right. So what have, what have we done here this summer? We have not studied the book, it's too big of a book. We wouldn't get very far. We have surveyed it. We began by considering Jeremiah's call in chapter 1, which is the ideal introduction to the book. And then we've talked about major topics in the book, topics that as you read this book, you will encounter again and again and again. We began with the big three, in chapters three, sorry, chapters two, three, and four, the big three descriptions of sin, calls to repentance, warnings about judgment. Those are the big three, not just for Jeremiah, they're the big three for all the prophets. But then we turned our attention to topics that are prominent in Jeremiah's book in particular. We talked about his love of object lessons. And we used as our examples the the two pottery parables in chapters 18 and 19, right? Chapters 18 and 19. And um, then we talked about the importance of autobiography in this book. We talked about persecution, grief, complaint. And then in the last two weeks here, we've, we've talked about Um, uh, we've talked about covenant-breaking leaders. But before we get next week to the glorious, beating heart of joy that comes in the middle of this book, I know joy is not a word you associate with Jeremiah, but you should. Chapters 30, 31, 32, 33. Before we get there next week, there's one more prominent topic in this book that we must consider. Really, the most difficult of all. A topic which becomes increasingly prominent as you read through the book. Uh, Indeed, the word exile appears more than twice as often in the book of Jeremiah than it does in any other book in the Bible. 
It is a very prominent theme indeed in this book. Last week, read, uh, last week Chris Dimsky read an especially powerful description of it in chapter 25. Do you remember these words? Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. It's a difficult topic. The Babylonian captivity was a topic that Jeremiah himself found difficult. And it's a topic that his hearers could not stomach at all. Let's not mince words. When we're talking about the Babylonian captivity, when we're talking about the exile, we're talking about the very reversal of the covenant blessings that the Jews looked to for their, their religious identity, their, their place in God's world. Long, long ago, God led Abraham out of the land of the Chaldeans and gave him promises. Do you remember them? Among those promises was a promise to give to Abraham and to his offspring the land of Canaan. But best of all, there was the promise that he would be their God. And now they're losing it. That land that was so painstakingly parceled off in the book of Joshua, they're losing it. That land that's a, that's a picture of heaven They're losing. The temple, the Ark of the Covenant, these pictures of God's presence with them, right? Emmanuel, God with us, destroyed. It's the worst thing in the Bible between the fall and the loss of the garden and Golgotha. It's terrible. And they're going back to the very place that their father Abraham left. It is, as I said, the reversal of everything the Jews believed about themselves in God's world. The first occurrence of the word exile in the book of Jeremiah occurs in chapter 13. Would you turn to Jeremiah chapter 13? Verse 
It occurs in verse 19. The cities of the Negev are shut up with none to open them. All Judah is taken into exile, wholly taken into exile. What I propose we do is read the whole chapter. And uh, as, as we do, I want you to look for the answer to a very basic question. Why? Why did the exile happen? So I'll read the whole chapter. Thus says the Lord to me, Go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist and do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise. Go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug. And I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it, and behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, even so will I spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, but they would not listen. You shall speak to them this word, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every jar shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? Then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land, the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will dash them one against another, fathers and sons together, declares the Lord. I will not pity or spare or have compassion that I should not destroy them. Hear and give ear, Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains, and while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep 
bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Say to the king and the queen mother, Take a lowly seat, for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of the Negev are shut up with none to open them. All Judah is taken into exile, wholly taken into exile. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? What will you say when they set as head over you those whom you yourself have taught to be friends to you? Will not pangs take hold of you like those of a woman in labor? And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. I will scatter you like chaff driven by the wind from the desert. This is your lot, the portion I have measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. I myself will lift up your skirts over your face, and your shame will be seen. I have seen your abominations, your adulteries and neighings, your lewd whorings on the hills in the field. Woe to you, O Jerusalem! How long will it be before you are made clean? All right, let's talk briefly through the chapter. Um, In verses 1 through 11, we have another one of Jeremiah's object lessons. So many in this book. He loves, as we've noted, to take some ordinary, physical, commonplace thing and, and, or activity and use it to teach a spiritual lesson. Or God uses Jeremiah to teach such a lesson. In this case, it's a loincloth, some kind of undergarment. And it's made from linen, which is a finer material in the ancient world. The sort of thing a, a priest or a king would wear. Not a prophet. A linen loincloth. And uh, what's he supposed to do with this fancy article of clothes? Hide it. Where? And where is that? Where's the Euphrates River? Modern day Iraq. Um, It's the land of the Chaldeans where Abraham came from, and where the people will be sent into exile. It's a long way from Jerusalem, like 300 miles, or, or depending upon where on the Euphrates River you're going to, it would take many months. Now, it was a journey that people often took in those days. There were well-established routes so this is not an impossible thing God asked of Jeremiah, but it is a, a rather arduous and excessive thing, it seems, to us. But Jeremiah did it. He, he, he wore the loincloth so everyone could see it. And then he spent, I don't know, 
three, four, maybe five months, going all the way to the Euphrates, where he buries it, and then he comes back. And, of course, everyone sees that the linen loincloth is gone. And then God has him do it again. Can you imagine if an object lesson took up a whole year of your life? But it's a profound one. And, and the very excessiveness of that journey is part of the lesson. You think it was hard for Jeremiah to travel all the way to the Euphrates and back twice? Imagine what it'll be like when you're in chains, in forced marches, with your babies and your grandparents. It is, of course, a picture of going into captivity in Babylon. And then there's another object lesson, jars. What do you put in the jars? You put wine in the jars. And Jeremiah's listeners go, well, of course you put wine in the jars. Um, But the point is that God is going to um, darken the thinking of the leaders of Jerusalem. Those kings, those prophets, those priests that you've talked about the last two weeks with Aaron and Chris, they're going to be crazy like those who are drunk, smashing into one another in a kind of drunken... Have you ever been to a demolition derby? Anybody ever been to a demolition derby? Right? You probably have better things to do, but, you know. Or, or uh, maybe you've seen... Have you ever seen mosh dancing? I haven't, but I'm a musicologist, so I know what they are. Down the mosh pit where, where these people are banging to one another. The very people who are supposed to guide God's people, the very people who are supposed to lead God's people... Acting insane, destructively, self-destructively. In um, in verse eighteen, we have a reference to Jehoiachin. Say to the king and the queen mother, we know that because of how prominent Jehoiachin's mother was during those three months when he reigned. Nahushta was her name. And of course, uh, they were deposed in 597 when Zedekiah came to power. For your beautiful crown has come down from your head. So why did it happen? According to this text, why did the people lose their land? Why were they forced to go back to where their father came from? Why did they lose their temple? Verse 22, if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? Why? 
What does it say? They would not listen. They worshipped other gods. Verse 25, this is your lot because you have forgotten me. It's because they disobeyed. It's, it's, it's judgment. That is the obvious answer. I, most of you probably knew the answer to that question even before you came to class this morning. The exile happened because of the people's disobedience. The massive failure of the people of God to keep the covenant on their own. Um, in chapter 5 begins this way. God says to Jeremiah, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man. One. One man who does justice and seeks truth that I may pardon her. It's like God with Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, Jeremiah, you find me one man who does justice and seeks truth. And he can't. He, he goes all throughout the city. Not among the poor does he find such a man. Not among the leaders. Not among the children. Not among the adults. Not among the prophets. It's a depressing chapter, chapter 5. But it's what the Bible teaches. None is righteous. No, not one. They have uncircumcised ears that cannot listen, chapter 6. And when you get to the end of the book of Jeremiah, when, when Jeremiah is kidnapped and dragged to Egypt of all places, the people are still worshiping idols. And so... They lost Canaan. They lost the temple. God told them that they would. It was a covenant. Covenants have stipulations, right? And if you don't keep a covenant, there are sanctions, right? What we read in chapter 13 is all about the covenant curses that came about because of the people's disobedience. In the, the object lesson about the linen loincloth? Well, the, the loincloth is a picture, a vivid picture of the Jews' special status, bright and clean and close to God. But their sin spoiled it all. God had told the Jews in Exodus 19 that they shall be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. But not if they break the covenant. So they lose the temple. They lose the altar where the sacrifices were made, this picture of the gospel, of of redemption, of reconciliation. In chapter 13, verse 
12, we read about these leaders, the kings, the prophets, the priests, acting like they're drunk. We, we read in verse 18 of the king losing his seat. But God had told David, back in 2 Samuel, that his throne shall be established forever. Not if the covenant's broken. In, in verse 19 and verse 24, we, we read about the loss of the land. I will scatter you, verse 24, I will scatter you like chaff driven by the wind from the desert. This is why Jeremiah grieves so. Back when we talked about grief, I read verses 15 through 17. Why did the people have to go into captivity? Because of their sin. Okay, I get that. That is... The obvious answer, that is what the Bible says over and over again, that is the most direct and immediate reason why they lost the covenant blessings. But sometimes I wonder why all that had to happen. Why did the covenant fail? Were Babylon's gods greater than Judah's God? What about the many promises in the Old Testament that seem to guarantee the permanence of the blessings? Just a minute ago, we together cited 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God told David that his throne would be established forever. There are so many promises like that that seem to suggest that the blessings would be guaranteed forever. Just to read one of the many that I could read in in Psalm 132, verse 13, we read this, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. How exactly does the exile fit within God's sovereign plan of redemption? So yes, the exile had to happen because of the people's sin. But why did it have to happen, looking at the larger picture, in God's plan? Can we imagine a plan without an exile? Thought experiment. After God made his covenant with David, was anything else really necessary to prepare the way for the Messiah? Couldn't the Messiah have come then? Couldn't the Messiah have been Solomon? Could Solomon have been the Christ? Had not the fullness of time come, would something have been missing? 
Now, I know that sounds like a very speculative question, very philosophical, um, but I don't think it is speculative. I think Jeremiah answers that question as well. He tells us what the immediate cause of the exile was, the people's sin, but he also tells us why the exile had to happen as part of God's good plan for you and for me and for the people who experienced the exile. I think it's hinted at in this initial object lesson of the linen loincloth at the beginning of chapter 13. Look back at the beginning of chapter 13. The loincloth was spoiled. What's that a picture of? Was Israel spoiled by the exile? No. No, actually, a lot of those who went to Babylon repented. The Bible tells us in many places that the exile was a purging, not a spoiling. In Leviticus 26, for example, we read about how the exile would be like one big Sabbath to make up for all the Sabbaths that the Israelites would neglect. Now, I don't think the spoiling of the loincloth represents the spoiling of Israel. Look at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, even so will I spoil what? The pride. The pride of Israel. And the word pride then comes back in verse 15. Hear and give ear, be not proud. And it comes back in verse 17. My soul will weep in secret for your pride. What was spoiled was Israel's pride. And that's what they needed to have spoiled. If it's implicit there, it's explicit, plain as day, back in chapter 7. Would you please turn back to Jeremiah chapter 7? I'm going to read a big chunk of this chapter, too. Bear with me. This is a sermon that Jeremiah preaches. And um, in all likelihood, this sermon gets referenced later on in chapter 26. In chapter 26, there's like a one-sentence summary of chapter 7. Chapter 26 begins, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, and you know what that is because of our history facts, The word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah. And then down in verse 4 it says, 
You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law that I have set before you and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh. That's a one-sentence summary of chapter 7. And it doesn't go well. People don't want to hear this sermon about Shiloh that we're about to read in its entirety. And um, Jeremiah almost lost his life. It's one of the many instances of persecution that, that we just mentioned in our persecution class. We didn't actually look at chapter 26 in detail. But now let's look at this sermon because I think it very plainly shows us why the exile is an integral part of God's plan of salvation. Listen with me now to this this Shiloh sermon, or temple sermon as it's sometimes called, chapter 7. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, Then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Quick pause here. Those words sound familiar? What does it remind you of? Thank you, Clyde. When when Jesus cleanses the temple, he quotes Jeremiah 7. He quotes Jeremiah's Shiloh sermon. Den of robbers has my house become. But picking up again, middle of verse 11. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh. Stop there. What's Shiloh? If you look at the map of the back of your Bible, it's about 20 miles due north of Jerusalem in the tribe of Ephraim. And what was in Shiloh in the Old Testament? Why is it important in your Bible study? That's where God had the tabernacle located when the people first entered into Canaan. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It's where the priests oversaw the sacrifices 
during the centuries before David relocated it to Jerusalem. So now God is telling the people to remember Shiloh. See what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. As for you, Jeremiah, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add to your burnt offerings, sorry, I misread that, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. That's a shocking thing for God to say, right? The, the burnt off, you know, you know the different offerings in the book of Leviticus? The, 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 the highest of them all was the burnt offering. It was the thing you did to really show God that you were committed to him. Because you didn't eat the meat, you burned up all the meat. And God is saying, just go ahead and eat it. better stop there. In what were the men of Judah trusting, according to this text? Verse 4, verse 14... What are they relying on? The temple. Their identity as the sons and daughters of Abraham. Their, their, their land. These covenant blessings. What should their trust be in? The Lord. And that's why the exile needed to happen. This is what the Babylonian captivity contributes, above all, I think, to our theology, at least according to the book of Jeremiah. There's a double meaning here. If we go back to chapter um, 13 and think about the loincloth being buried 
by the Euphrates. There's a double meaning here in chapter 7 when God says, look to Shiloh. Look what happened there. The northern kingdom fell in 722, more than a century before the preaching of this sermon. God did it to Shiloh. Why wouldn't he do it to Jerusalem? In fact, if you go back even farther than the fall of the northern kingdom, do you remember a time way back in biblical history when the Ark of the Covenant was removed from the tabernacle in Shiloh and taken to a foreign land? Do you remember this? 1 Samuel? Whose fault was that? Do you remember this Bible story? The Israelites are at war with the Philistines and they're afraid, and so what do they do? They're going to they're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant with them in the battle, like a lucky charm. And it didn't go so well, did it? The Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was held for months in a foreign land. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. So, for whom did Jesus die? The physical sons and daughters of Abraham? To the inhabitants of of the city where God made his name dwell? The physically circumcised? Are those the ones God sent Jesus to save? Was it for those who worshipped at the temple? Was it for those who are merely marked by the signs of the covenant? Those who have been baptized? Those who partake of the Lord's Supper. Are they the ones that Jesus died for? The story of the exile, the experience of the exile, delivers God's people from the false idea of a holy, unconditional covenant. Is God's love, is God's covenant... Unconditional. No. Go back and read the text. There were always stipulations. There were expectations. What had to be spoiled, chapter 13, verse 9, was the pride of Judah, the great pride of Jerusalem, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you just say it enough times, does that make it true? Phil Riken writes this, Jeremiah's message in chapter 7 is a strong warning to everyone who seeks to be justified before God by religious observance. Some put their trust in church attendance and say, I go to church, I go to church, I go to church. 
Some put their trust in a sacrament and say, I've been baptized, baptized, baptized. Some put their trust in a religious experience and say, I'm born again, born again, born again. Some put their trust in church affiliation and say, I belong to an evangelical church, evangelical church, evangelical church. Others put their trust in religious duties and say, I have daily devotions, daily devotions, daily devotions. Still others put their trust in some theological principle separated from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They say, I believe in the doctrines of grace, doctrines of grace, doctrines of grace. This is what God's people learned from the exile. That the covenant has conditions. And you can't put your trust in these outward signs. Only with this understanding of the exile can we make sense of those parts of Jeremiah that assert that hope lies with the exiles rather than for the people who stayed in Jerusalem. In chapter 24, Jeremiah has a vision of two baskets of figs, and one basket's rotten figs, and one basket is good figs. And the good figs are the ones in Babylon. And the rotten figs were the ones in God's country. Maybe the most famous verse in all of Jeremiah is in chapter 29. Many of you could recite it by memory, and I'm glad. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. To whom is Jeremiah writing those words? To the exiles in Babylon. It's the exiles in Babylon who have a future and a hope, not for the ones still in Jerusalem. It's this understanding of the exile that helps us to understand these texts, the lesson of the exile is precious. Learning the lesson of the exile is a prerequisite to understanding the gospel. Conditions must be met or there will be curses. It's just that in God's covenant of grace, it's Jesus who meets the conditions. And it's Jesus who bears the curses for our failure to meet the conditions. Thinking back to the pottery Parables. He is the Bach book, the, 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 the flask that got dashed upon the rocks because of our sin. The Australian Bible scholar J.A. Thompson puts it this way, and here is really the, the main point of today's lesson. Dependence on the temple and its rituals Belief in the inviolability of Jerusalem and the Davidic dynasty, pride in their being the people of Yahweh, were all in the final count false bases for hope. Had they been a true basis for hope, faith itself would have been destroyed. We are saved by faith, trusting God. In Jesus Christ. Not in this church. Not in the Bible. Not in the sacrament. But in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we meet in these places.
And the Babylonian captivity recurs every time a child of the covenant takes his salvation for granted and breaks the covenant. Every time a prodigal son tries to have justification without sanctification, but only finds himself captive to foreign gods. Thanks be to Jehovah that in his mercy he spoils the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem and brings so many prodigal sons home. Would you turn in your hymnal to 522? 522. We'll talk a little bit about it before singing it, so you don't need to stand yet. But please turn to 522. Now, this is a hymn that we frequently sing at Carlisle Reformed Presbyterian Church, and I'm really glad that we do. I thought this morning, though, we would sing it to the alternative tune. You're most likely familiar with the tune on the facing page, number 521. By having us sing the tune on uh, number 522, I don't want to suggest that it's somehow a better tune. I don't want to suggest that I think it should somehow supplant the more familiar tune. I think the tune of 521 is fantastic, and I hope we sing it countless times together. But sometimes singing a familiar text to a different tune can bring out different aspects of the words. And um, I really want us to listen to these words today. And the tune of 522 fits these words like a glove, especially the refrain. On the words Christ, solid, rock, the tune leaps up and lands in these high, solid places. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. And then, for the sinking sand, you just sink to the bottom of your range. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Frame? What's a frame? It's a, it's a structure, right, that, that gives strength or shape to something. Like a house. Does your house have a frame? Or a picture? Or a piece of furniture? Right? What structure are you looking to for strength? For, for shape in your life? Sometimes the things we look to for support are good things. We've talked about the church, the denomination, the Bible, the sacrament. These frames are sweet indeed, but apart from Jesus, they mean nothing. But wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. There's a strange image. You all know what a veil is. What's the, what's the most prominent veil in the Bible? 
the one that separates the Holy of Holies from the Holy in the temple and in the tabernacle. What a strange image. How did an anchor get in the Holy of Holies? Here, don't shut your hymnal, but this will be worth it. Turn to Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6. Would someone read verses 19 and 20? Here, Tyler, you got it? Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is our high priest in the Holy of Holies, and united to him, we not only have hope, but we have, you know, we have the presence of God. We are his people. He is our God. The covenant promises fulfilled. Jesus is the anchor that holds us firm. Uh, in the midst of God's presence and pleasure. Let's sing together. Let's stand and sing together hymn number 522.
with me. Oh Lord, we uh, reject the, 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 the prideful things that we are tempted to put our trust in, that sinking sand, and we ask that we would learn the lesson of the exile from your word and not from hard experience, that it is Christ alone who is our hope and our stay. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.